Welcome to Opera Innovations, a podcast by ABA Technologies. This week, we are excited to bring you the first of our university series. Today, we're talking with Eastern Michigan University, and I had the pleasure and opportunity to sit down with Adam Briggs and Marilyn Bonham to speak about their very unique program that offers much more than just behavior analysis. So let's jump in. We are here at Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti. I'm going to let these two introduce themselves. Thanks, Shauna, and thanks so much for having us on your program so that we get a chance to talk about our program. Really appreciate that. So uh, my name is Adam Briggs. Um, I'm a first-year assistant professor of psychology here at Eastern Michigan University. Um, I've got my degrees most recently at uh, University of Kansas, where I got my PhD degree under the uh, mentorship of Dr. Claudia Dozier. Uh, prior to that, I got a master's degree at Auburn University with uh, doctors uh, Jim Carr and Jim Johnston. And prior to that, I got my undergraduate at Western Michigan University, and that's where I discovered behavior analysis. And then actually, after I got my PhD, I did a two-year postdoctoral uh, fe- research fellowship at the Monroe Meyer Institute under the mentorship of Dr. Wayne Fisher. And so my primary uh, focus here as a faculty member is um, working with the uh, undergraduate uh, uh, BC Little ABA focus or concentration on the coursework, and also in the master's program, I'm teaching a lot of the behavior analytic uh, courses. Um, and uh, for both the undergraduate and uh, graduate programs, I'm sort of overseeing the uh, application for them becoming verified course sequences through ABAI. So we're in the process of that right now. And also with our PhD program, which we'll get into a little bit more later, but um, I'm uh, a faculty that's part of the doctoral training committee, and um, we'll be taking doctoral students uh, uh, in the coming years. Um, and although it's a clinical psychology program, I'll be providing an applied behavior analysis uh, focus. Um, so I'll be looking for students who want to get their degrees, research degrees in behavior analysis, but also have an op- opportunity to earn their uh, license in psychology. I'm Marilyn Bonham. I have got my PhD in behavior analysis from Utah State in 1988. Prior to that, I got my master's in applied behavior analysis from Drake University. I've been on the faculty for 32 years, and I was instrumental in helping develop the curriculum in the in the beginning of the program. And much of that still kind of remains part of the curriculum today, although lots of changes and improvements have been made. I also was the co-author of the proposal for the doctoral program, and the doctoral program is linked, was designed to be linked to both our general clinical program here and our general master's clinical program here, as well as the clinical behavioral master's. I do some private practice work. I've done private practice work with autistic kids, with variety of populations, head injury. I do behavior therapy stuff with adults. Um, so that's about it. I've had the pleasure of speaking with these two for about an hour (laughs) before we actually started talking and really gotten to dive into the qualities that Eastern Michigan University's program, what they have to offer and what it is. And I know you heard Marilyn kind of say this clinical behavior program. And so can you two explain just an overall, an overarching umbrella description of what Eastern's program is and, you know, why it might be called this clinical behavior program versus if they're looking at, you know, other schools, or it might just be ABA or behavior analysis. I think that the program, the master's program, was designed originally to incorporate both the um, 
behavior therapy tradition as well as the behavior analytic tradition. And we've always had some of both faculty um, and we've always collaborated and seen the connections between the two, um, the two kinds of approaches to behavioral clinical work. And um, so we've always kind of felt like we incorporated the best of both. And um, originally we were designed to uh, put people into a master's uh, lice level license. Mm -hmm. um, so they're licensed clinical psychologists at the master's level. That's always been true from the get-go. And then now more recently with the certification, the BCBA certification, we've incorporated that too. So that's one really unique, uh, so several really unique things about our program. One that that they get both of those directions, that they can be both licensed and get eventually get the BCBA certification pretty seamlessly. And um, I think another unique thing is that they can go directly from our program into the DOC program if they so desire to continue with research and things like that. Yeah, and I uh, really want to emphasize uh, the points that uh, Dr. Bonham made with respect to how unique that, of a, that type of arrangement or structure of a master's level training program is. So I'm familiar with master's training programs for folks to earn their uh, BCBA, for it being a very focused, you're going to work with individuals diagnosed with autism, here are the core classes that you need, um, you sit for the exam, you get your certification, and then that's what you do for the rest of your career. With respect to this program, it's part of it, but really the emphasis, although we, you get the necessary coursework and training, it's taught with a, a little slight uh, twist, or actually more of a, of a broader application. And um, as we were talking earlier, mentioned that probably about only 25% of each of our cohorts are, uh, have a focus on working with individuals with that have a diagnosis of autism or providing behavioral therapy. The other 75% are, are interested in gaining that behavioral training um, uh, experience and background, but to then go and apply it with a variety of populations or, and a variety of other behavioral problems. So, for instance, working with a gerontological population, the elderly, uh, the aging with dementia, working with individuals that have um, anxiety uh, disorders or depression, and again, they're taking the, this understanding of uh, our behavioral sciences and learning other types of behavioral therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, uh, DBT, uh, ACT, um, and using that to go work with those populations. Again, having a very behavioral training, very behavioral background, but being able to go work with this variety of populations. Um, and uh, again, to highlight the fact that I'm, this is the, ours is the only program that I'm familiar with in, uh, that you can go through and yes, go sit for your certification to become a board certified behavior analyst, but also to, to also practice as a limited licensed psychologist in the state of Michigan. And I think that's a real strength of our program there. But, and to just interrupt you really quick, um, this is something that is a little bit different from some of the other schools that we've talked about that have maybe a clinical side to it, um, whereas I, want, I just want to reiterate it, that you guys have said you have a terminal master's clinical program that still is focused in behavior analysis, mm -hmm. whereas some of the other programs that we've talked about, if you're coming in for a more clinical behavior analysis program, you're staying for a PhD. They don't, not all programs Our have terminal. Mm -hmm. this terminal master's limited license mm -hmm. practitioner program. So I think that, I just want to make sure I reiterate that, that yeah. that is and a I, option. Here. And I really like that for PhD 
I really liked getting a master's first because there were many tough, as we all know, <laughs> many tough days when I thought I couldn't make it through my doc program. And so just knowing that you could kick back and get that master's and leave and practice and if all you really wanted to do was go out and help kids function better, you could do that. Mm -hmm. you know? And we've had a lot of students that have done that, but then we've also had students who've gotten the master's and then segued right into the PhD. Mm -hmm. but then we've also had students who've gotten their master's, taken a year or so off, done some clinical work, and then realized, no, I really do want to make a commitment to pursuing a PhD, right. and they were able to you know, transition right back in. So, and you might not know that when you exactly. went to the master's yeah. program, but you're in, you, know, you might get really hooked into research right. and things. And I know that you talked about you know, that 75% of the students actually go on to work outside of you know the traditional autism route that we see a lot of our students going into um, so what does the faculty look like here and what are some of their research interests and you know what are they kind of focusing on yeah so our faculty as a whole in our psychology department is one they're amazing individuals uh, two they're very fun to interact with and work with I feel like we have a very collegial department at least that's my perspective after one year Adam's gonna be up for tenure in a couple of years too, so. <laughs> <laughs> he's got to speak highly of it right now <laughs> um, but but really and I think the students can see that and feel that too and I think that's important we have a great our website our psychology website has awesome links and bios for all of our faculty members and what their backgrounds are what their interests are contact information so we'll uh, definitely direct you to check that out um, should we list our faculty or uh, yeah now sure you know? okay, sure let's make sure we remember everyone Michelle Bird works with kids Ellen Cook works with anxiety disorders and mostly behavior therapies um, Adam and I've already said what we did we've got Jim Todd who is um, does basic research and um, who else do we have? We have, and he also puts on BAM. And then we have Claudia uh, Drossel, who specializes in um, aging populations, Alzheimer's, dementia, and um, the new wave behavior therapies such as FAP. We have um, Tom um, Waltz, who does um, a variety of things. Some things with kids. I don't know exactly everything that he does, but he's also like a behavior therapy person. Mm -hmm. So he does some work with kids and some work with adults. Mm -hmm. um, we have um, Tamara mm -hmm. Loveridge, mm -hmm. who um, does eating disorder stuff. She's worked with, um, I don't know, sexual predators and mm -hmm. stuff in the prison population. Um, a variety of kind of, again, new wave therapies. And, and who? Alex Marigakis. Alex. Alex, our other new faculty, Miragakis, who um, is in health, um, behavioral health mm -hmm. kinds of mm -hmm. things, as well as Michelle Bird is in behavioral yep. health kinds of things as well and, and does behavior therapy stuff with kids. Who yeah. am I missing? Anybody? Those are, I think, our primary behavioral faculty. We have Elliot Bonham, who yep. does um, experimental analysis and um, history and systems of behaviorism um, yeah. at one time related to me. With the, specifically within our, um, our, our training program, our clinical behavior training program, um, the behavior analysts that we have uh, primarily got their um, graduate or advanced training at the University of uh, Nevada, Reno, or UNR, 
And so they worked with individuals like Steve Hayes, uh, uh, Dr. Donahoe, um, and getting being able to bring that aspect here. And so a lot of their interests are uh, applying that type of um, behavioral therapy to uh, individuals that aging individuals, again, individuals with um, other anxiety disorders. And I think like recently, I know that a group of them just uh, are working on a grant that is, uh, I think in Maryland, you may be more familiar with it than I am, given I'm still kind of learning the, the landscape here. But I do know that they've got a uh, grant through the state of Michigan, um, and they're working with uh, setting up training systems uh, for going in and uh, working with uh, elderly um, uh, individuals that are maybe showing signs of, of depression, showing signs of aging, and how to go in and train staff to effectively work with these individuals. And so I know that uh, several of them are primarily working on that and therefore their students are helping them work on that as well. Um, so that's just an example of one um, area that's outside of autism that our program helps uh, to facilitate. It's a service. It's a service yeah. grant. Okay. And, um, Many of those faculty that come from um, from Reno um, have this kind of underpinning of even though they're behavior therapists, they're oftentimes doing this sort of hybrid. I don't know what percentage of your audience knows about things like FAP, um, but you know it's a hybrid of behavior mm -hmm. therapy and behavior analysis. And I really, really think that the strength is really that it kind of works both ways. I think that one of the things that having those two uh, tracks, if you will, or not really tracks, but two different emphases of which people can be equally equipped to do both, or they can concentrate mm -hmm. on one or the other. But one of the things that I think that the behavior analytic students learn is it's almost like translational, mm -hmm. not in the true sense of what we're talking, what we usually talk about within behavior analysis of translational between the experimental literature and the applied literature, but they have to respect each other's perspectives and they have to learn to talk and translate their language into language. That, and they both learn both languages to an extent, but some people speak more behavior analytic language and I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the way I think, that's the way I think about things is mm -hmm. that behavior analytic and behavior therapy are languages and they have terminologies and they have concepts and terms that that signify those concepts um, and um, those concepts are pretty deep kind of conceptual understandings at some some levels but anyway I do think that that informs that 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 informs those behavior analytic because they can have a tendency to just become so steeped in that behavior and to not ever think outside of that and then they go and make stupid mistakes when they go out on practicum and they start throwing around the jargon, you know, as if everybody knows that, and parents don't know it. If they in, end up in an interdisciplinary setting, those other people aren't going to know mm -hmm. it. If they're being interviewed by a social worker, that person's yeah. not going to know it. And so I think that that informs, but I think that the behavior analytic side informs the behavior therapy. I think, I think that um, especially, particularly function mm -hmm. is an important concept that's not really fully incorporated into behavior yeah. therapy because the treatments are so standardized and they're so group oriented mm -hmm. and they're so tied to diagnosis. And really when we start to look at diagnosis, we start to see, oh, there's like five or six different contingencies that operate within depression or, you know, it's, they're not homogenous groups mm -hmm. and so there may be more operant components and even if they're classical conditioning components 
that are part of the disorder, a functional analysis of classical conditioning, which in my opinion we don't do enough of anywhere, but that, that technology mm -hmm. can, I think, really the technology and the concept of function can really be yeah, useful. I, th I think those are really great points, Marilyn, and to sort of piggyback off of the function aspect, um, I think that's one of the great things that folks um, coming through our program really get uh, a, a lot of uh, background and training in and understanding and to be able to apply that to their cases. And then the other one, I think, is to be able to uh, define the behavior that they're uh, wanting to uh, place contingencies on and to uh, something that's observable, measurable, um, is I think also not unique, but I think there's more of an emphasis uh, in behavior analysis and therefore that's what translates well to their clinical work. Mm -hmm. um, and then to go back to another point that you made that I thought was a really great point, is that the students in here, because the, there's diverse uh, languages of the technology that we're using and um, our backgrounds, I think it exposes them very early on to there's more out there than just what you're studying. And so there's more out there than just behavior analysis. There's more out there than just uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that, therefore, that makes them more aware so that when they do go into the, their other settings, they are less likely to make those mistakes that Marilyn brought up that I think in my experience um, coming up through programs that were primarily um, uh, ABA, this is what we're, you're going to eat, sleep, and breathe that, and then you're, we're going to put you out in the real world, um, I, where folks were likely to you know, throw jargon around and kind of get looked at cross-eyed and maybe get, uh, 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 get turned off by their caregivers or other fa uh, faculty and make those mistakes early on that maybe hindered some of their progress as a professional. I think that early on here they get introduced to there's a lot more out there. You need to learn to speak, talk the talk, and you need to think like a behavior analyst, but you also need to speak like a clinician, like a professional. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's a real strength, too, that I think that we offer. That, and I think Marilyn hit the nail on the head when she brought that up. And it's really great to hear that you guys are saying you are <laughs> Eastern is bridging the gap between behavior analysis and disseminating behavior analysis and making it applicable to outside fields, not just this jargon-ridden field that's going out there and being like, no, we're the best, this is how mm -hmm. it's going to be, really teaching your students how to be practical in yeah. the real world yeah. and what they should actually expect when they go out there um, because um, we can sometimes as students get caught up in our campus life yeah. and we're surrounded by behavior analysts so it's very easy like you said to live breathe eat behavior analysis mm -hmm. but you guys are bridging that gap between sometimes behavior I, analysis. sometimes I don't understand the language that students come in with because I'm old-school behavior mm -hmm. analyst and they come in with language that they get when they're working in ABA mm -hmm. you know settings and there's like new terminology that's like I don't know, it's old ideas, but mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. different terms, and I'm something sometimes different. not yeah. familiar with it, yep. and then they think, I've had it happen, <laughs> where they think, I don't know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about, <laughs> because I don't use their language, mm -hmm. and it can happen, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. it can... But I think... But then that's a good opportunity for them to understand that, oh, no, she knows what you're talking about, but it was called knows, this yeah, way back when. Right. And so, therefore, that's where our science comes from, or some of these experimental right. mm -hmm. practices right. and early studies. Mm -hmm. And although we, you know, coin it as... Um, I can't even think of an example. Yeah. But, but like, uh, or pivot praise. 
Um, that's an example. Right, that like is a, an example. Uh, I have well, no idea different. what, what that is. What is pivot praise? Well, that's a term. Uh, exactly. <laughs> well, that's a term that I've heard that's kind of uh, created um, maybe at a, it's a, a cultural term at a site or a practice center, and but really it's just differential reinforcement. You pivot away from um, oh. somebody who's engaging in problematic behavior, and then you pivot or you praise the more appropriate alternative response. Well, it's mm-hmm. differential reinforcement. And so there's a lot of times where there's names kind of thrown out for uh, procedures, but really they're linked to these uh, mm-hmm. uh, conceptual uh, practices that we are very familiar with. Call me old school, but I like Skinner's terminology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty concise. It's pretty parsimonious. And And sometimes it gets misused. I mean, sometimes the concepts are... Sometimes they'll use an old term. What about practicum sites? Um, Because, you know, on-campus university program, Mm -hmm. where are you guys sending your students? Where are they getting their experience? Well, since we just talked about it, I'll give a little more information about the Autism Collaborative Center. It's actually a center that's literally, I kind of point over here because it's right outside my window, but it's a, you know, more than a stone's throw away, maybe... And so it's... As Marilyn just kindly pointed out, it's the opposite direction that Adam just pointed out. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Adam. So again, I'm new here, so I'm still learning the the landscape, but it's close. I know it's less than a minute drive away. Um, It's technically on campus, and um, we're actually currently, um, over this past year, I've been working with the folks over there to set up a a practicum for undergraduate students to come in um, to get their practical uh, training experience there. They, through their undergraduate course, they have to take practicum credits, and so this is their opportunity to do that and supervised by myself and the other BCBAs that work there. And then we're also setting up a um, training center for the graduate students to come in and um, be able to get uh, case ex- case lead experience, be able to conceptualize the case that they're working on, and, and more of an opportunity to do the program writing, do the graphing, data analysis, um, and those sorts of opportunities that frontline or that behavior analyst and uh, case leads will need to have and so that's uh, in the process of being set up will be we have some graduate and undergraduate students over there currently but we'll be full on this fall 2019 um, with uh, our kind of capacity for now um, and, but uh, we're really looking forward to that opportunity and then um, Marilyn do you want to speak a little bit about our CAPS the uh, kind of on-site clinical uh, experience that the masters and graduate students go to? Um. Yeah, we have a we also have a clinic on mm-hmm. campus that's more traditional. Well, I don't so it can be more traditional mm-hmm. in terms of outpatient kind yeah. of clientele. Um, so there, and then we have, and then um, we usually have one or two people that are strictly, you know, uh, kind of getting credit for teaching the the um, practicum course. Um, I wanted to say something about how it's not just the practicum where they get the hands-on experience, mm-hmm. but that's another yeah. kind of, I don't know if that's unique about our program, but they do get hands-on experience from the very first semester that they're mm-hmm. here. So they start out doing you know, hands-on. We have a, a system called pre-practicum. So they have a practicum or they have a, they have a, uh, seminar type course and that's married to a pre-practicum where they do hands-on skills sometimes it's simulated things Mm -hmm. other times it's little practice cases where they take one piece of it uh, analyze one behavior of some kid who's Mm -hmm. in one of these Mm -hmm. like at the autism center Mm -hmm. or something like that so they're getting experience all along uh, and then that's the finale is their their 500 hour practicum and because 
they have to be licensed. It has they have to have supervision by both someone with a um, fully licensed PhD clinical psychologist as well as someone who has his PhD BCBA supervision credentials. And hopefully that would be like the same person, but it could be two different mm -hmm. people. And so it's that's kind of unique that they can sort of kill two birds with one stone, or in some cases they can do one practicum and then another one after they graduate or just do two practicum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, there are a bunch of other sites and the people who have done it all along have kept records. So we have a wide variety of like, they can do forensic stuff, they can do, oh, you can re read off some of those. And I was gonna say, so we just kind of talked about two of our primary on-site or on-campus practicum um, opportunities, but I'm holding up a page that's a front and back two page of all the, the, the clinics or placements in the area mm -hmm. that we've worked with and had students per, c continue their um, practicum, whether it was uh, their internship or just a practicum setting. Um, but yeah, just kind of reading a couple off of here, um, we've got uh, uh, Albion College Counseling Services, we've got Ann Arbor Rehabilitation Center, Neuropsychological Assessment Rehabilitation, um, we've got Henry Ford Behavior Analysis, um, Henry Ford Neuropsychology, Judson Center, um, and so these are all just from areas, or these are all clinics that are within our um, uh Metro Detroit, um, Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area that we've uh, worked with and um, provide a lot of uh, psychological services, rehabilitation, um, uh, services for autism that uh, we have already established relationships with, that we have contacts with and can place folks there based on whatever their level of interest is. And we are. collect data on those mm -hmm. and so we have, um, like we basically have contact people there and then they have to, we have contracts, we have, you know, Letters of um, agreement or, mm -hmm. um, so that they um, know what they're getting into and that they know what the expectation is so that whoever gets to supervise people at these off-site places know that there will be a period of shadowing and then there will be a period where they introduce assessment and then there will be a period where they take on a couple of cases and get supervised and have you know the expectation the expectation isn't always carried out. We don't always get the same quality of supervision out in the field that we get at our centers here, where you know if our faculty are supervising people over at the the clinic uh, on campus, then mm -hmm. they're watching videotapes mm -hmm. and they're yeah. sitting down with their students and giving them feedback on pretty much all their behavior, mm -hmm. at least in the beginning, until they're confident that they have the competencies right. to yeah. function on their own. Uh, but we also collect data um, surveys. We have like um, exit surveys that are filled out by the students who go to those practicum yep. sites. And then when new students, we have a huge notebooks, and when new students are choosing their site, they mm -hmm. can look to see what's the population, what kinds of interventions, who's available for supervision, is it interdisciplinary, so all the different questions. Mm -hmm. But they can also look at the, at the kinds of experiences that other people have had at those sites so that they can see whether it's a good place and yeah. and sometimes it can be a good place we do we used to do a place called psych systems and you had to be a really good initiator like you know the guy who ran it was so busy and so you know in and out and mm -hmm. it was like you were going to different people's homes and different out in the community and so to get direction but if a student had really good initiation skills, you know, yeah. they could function there, yeah. but other students couldn't. So, so although I think it's a strength that we have, the, the, these diverse relationships in the community, obviously one of the limitations is the 
kind of quality control. And, but we do actually have a faculty member that monitors these uh, these practicum placements and, as you were mentioning, does the, the surveys so that we can kind of see whether or not this is a, a site that we want to continue to recommend to students right, versus exactly. not. So we exactly. do have a system in place for that. And if there are issues that come up, yeah. you know, we track them and we sort of help the students negotiate through some of those problems. Yeah. And if something happens too many times, then it's like, well, we just take them out of the book. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that it's important, I think, to understand that practicum is really a state-monitored thing. Yes, they have to have a 500-hour supervised practicum in order, in other words, they have to fulfill the state's mm -hmm. criteria, but it wasn't designed for us to, we can't control everything just in the same way that we can't control what happens to them when they go out and get their first yep. job. Right. You know, we have to give our control over at some mm -hmm. point, and that's, I guess, yep. then they're, then we just try to prepare them with the best training, and we do have mm -hmm. courses in ethics, of course. And, and then they get ethical training when they do their practicum course mm -hmm. as well. So we just try to give them the best background that yeah. they can and so that also so that they recognize if somebody isn't doing what they should be mm -hmm. doing, they should be coming to us mm -hmm. and either switching practicum sites. So they know enough to know when yeah. they're getting good quality training and you know we can't. And and while they're micromanage everything exactly. outside of here. And while they're at those sites, we like I mentioned, there's a faculty member that helps support them and helps them navigate some of these more if they do come in contact with ethical dilemmas and how to because that's part of the training process, right? Mm -hmm. Is experiencing some of these less than optimal um, uh, issues while you are still in a support system and can right. receive that coaching. Or, and or they're being exploited, you know, yeah, yeah, somebody's sure. making them work more hours than they should mm -hmm. or not letting mm -hmm. them have time off yeah. right and not I mean, letting them do take the attend their classes right you now well i mean in it what i'm getting from this is that you guys offer such a wide variety of practicum opportunities so it sounds like no matter what type of experience that you would want to get you have the opportunity and eastern as a program has worked up these relationships and established these bonds throughout the community that their students can really get any type of practical experience that they want. Yeah, and that's important for us. <clears throat> and it's important for us as behavior analysts. And although my primary training and background is in autism and assessment and treatment of severe problem behavior, um, I think it's really important to. It's, it would be easy for me to take students and be like, "Hey, you're going to do what I'm doing and help mm -hmm. me pursue my interests." But it's really important for us as faculty to identify. One, they're here because they're interested in behavior analysis. Awesome, and you know. But let's uh, let's also identify what their other interests are in using behavior analysis, and put them in contact with opportunities to to reach those goals. And I think by having this really good um, understanding of the landscape in the Metro Detroit and Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti area of the types of clinics, and have already established relationships with these places, we're in a we're in a great position to help place our students in working in areas and populations. And so a couple others that I highlighted here, working at the Ann, Arbor's, uh, Ann Arbor Veterans Administration, working with individuals with post-traumatic stress, substance abuse, um, working at the Eisenhower Center for Traumatic Brain Injury Rehab, um, working at Henry Ford Neuropsychology, um, and then working at the Ross Halpern and Associates Chronic Pain, and then also the Guidance Center in Substance Abuse. So right there, that's just, I just pulled off five or six right off of a list that really expands um, uh, 
or spans across multiple populations. But again, we're going in with these are behaviorally trained individuals going in and but just working with a different population, but still being able to be very effective clinicians and practitioners. I was just going to say kind of what Adam started to say, and I just want to expand on it a little bit that, you know, that's, I don't, we have a strong, I think all the faculty are pretty united in that we're teaching principles. And just because you have application, just because you have experience only with one population and applying those principles doesn't mean that you don't have the skills because we're very principle oriented in teaching. And that's what, I mean, we do have faculty here who, who do research on, like I did research on reinforcement magnitude and, and contingencies and playing around with different kinds of contingencies. Um, I think it prepares them to really work with any population. Now when they get out of here, somebody's gonna judge them and say, oh, you've only had experience with young children or you've only had experience with mm -hmm. adults with PTSD. But we, but if they could find an opportunity, I believe that they would truly be have the competence to function with any population, you know. That's I mean, because the uh, other people outside of behavior an analysis, I think, tend to view things as very population specific. Mm -hmm. But I think we, and even the way that we design our courses, like when I teach the clinical applied behavior analysis course, I'll go principle by principle, and I'll try my best to incorporate some examples of other populations, be it kids with ADHD or autistic kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes there's only studies with a certain population to demonstrate yes. a certain concept, mm -hmm. but if I can, I'll try to incorporate sampling of as much those as others. possible. Right. And that's a, I love that point, and because it reminds me, so this semester was one of, I, this past semester I taught my first graduate level course, and it was clinical behavior analysis, and um, my primary training was in, you know, behavior analysis, kids with autism, assessment, treatment. And so it was a real challenge to me because I did, like Marilyn described, kind of working through principle by principle. But I really uh, challenged myself to find readings and articles that were outside of the literature that I was comfortable with, but still was demonstrating that these are these principles or procedures having an impact with this population. Um, to be able to give our students a broad understanding and programming, I guess, for generality of where these procedures work. Um, because I think if you look at our field as a whole and behavior analysis, and we were just talking about this earlier, but looking at the pages of Java, our flagship journal, it is predominantly with individuals with developmental disabilities and autism. Now there's a history there that explains why that's where, that's where we've been doing the majority of our research and work, but we really want our field to move forward and we really want our uh, areas of practice and folks to be trained in more diverse areas. It starts with, I think, the faculty being able to introduce some of these um, uh, diverse practice areas in their courses to these students in training so that they have an understanding. And I know that as Marilyn discussed, she does, I have, and I'm, I actually got uh, I consulted with some of the other faculty members here to in inform my reading, so I know that they're actively doing that too. So I think that's something to know about the coursework that we offer as well. Is, yeah, you'll get the, the, the basics, the learning, the EAB, but when it comes to the applied stuff, you're going to get autism and work with development disabilities, but we also really try make an effort to include how these principles and procedures 
are applicable with these other populations. And I think right. that's a real strength. And sometimes that, I mean, there are unique things that mm -hmm. are true for the different populations, and they may not get some of those specifics. You know, for example, you know, autistic kids, when you're doing discrimination training, maybe do overselectivity, sure. where they hone in on the, right. some flaw in the flashcard or mm -hmm. something. Um, you know, so they may not get like some of those details that are a the little deep bit different. Dive, yeah. yeah, but the principles are the same. Yeah. We're teaching them to discriminate. When you see this, you do this, and when you see that, you do yeah. this. Right. And you know, those principles apply mm -hmm. more broadly. And we're introducing them to the seminal articles or the seminal work, right. such that if they were to come in contact with somebody who had discrimination um, uh, errors, they would know where to go to further mm -hmm. research and find out, you know, how they could. They could use that to apply to their particular problem. And they can do, they can get into the weeds on mm -hmm. the specifics of the population by doing independent study. There's enough elective credits so that mm -hmm. they could do that and find out about those things like over-selectivity. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, we've been talking kind of about the student experience and, you know, what else can your students expect when, like, if they're looking at Eastern and they're like, okay, this weird town called Ypsilanti. Um, we'll get more into that in a minute. Um, I purposely said it wrong. Um, but like, what can they expect? Like faculty-wise, contact hours-wise, like what can they expect when they're so in just, the program? Yeah, so I can speak to a couple program-specific uh, uh, areas. Um, and then I'm actually going to hand it off to uh, Marilyn or Dr. Bonham because she is much more familiar with the Ypsilanti and Arbor area, given I just moved here. So, um, But I will tell you that my wife and I are loving it so far. So program specific, it's a two-year master's program. Um, the the You can get through it, as Marilyn mentioned earlier in the podcast, the master's coursework is... Um, designed such that if you did decide to stay on and apply for the PhD program, it would transition uh, very nicely. Um, and then, therefore, I think they expect like a three to four uh, additional years if you did stay on for a PhD. Um, but if you came in with uh, no master's, um, I think they're saying it's about a five, six year uh, PhD program on average, I think. Obviously, there's some, um, uh, there's a range there. But and how does that work for students who, like me, I only have a master's degree, how would that work if I applied to you know, the PhD program? Yeah, so we would look at your coursework. I'm sure there'd be a lot of overlap with what we're trying to uh, accomplish. I assume since you've already got your BCBA, we wouldn't necessarily require you to take those BCBA courses and probably could get a lot of those um, to uh, be waived or get credit for. Mm -hmm. But if, assuming that you're coming here, there would probably be an interest in acquiring your uh, license in psychology, so we want to make sure that you're getting all those courses um, and then getting the hours required for that. So we, And then if you, depending on what your master's program was, because our, our doc program does require you get a thesis along the mm -hmm. way. So if you come in with from a master's program with a thesis, we would review it as a committee and decide whether or not it meets our uh, minimum you know, requirements. Or if you don't come in with a thesis, because I know there's a lot of master's programs that are either like capstone or just kind of non thesis, or, yeah, yeah. Um, we would we would probably start talking, you know, within the interview maybe even mm -hmm. of what would you be interested in starting on your thesis, and we'd get that going right away. Um, or if for whatever reason your thesis is not up to par with kind of what our standards are, we would again just start talking right away about mm -hmm. what, how we could get started um, getting that going for you. But yeah, I think it would just there's 
a lot of avenues for um, folks coming in with a master's degree from uh, from not Eastern for us to get you transitioned in and to get credit for what you the hard work that you've already put in. But you are technically only allowed to transfer in nine credits. So but that doesn't mean that we right. couldn't waive the courses. You know, so, right. so in terms of total number of credits, you'd still have to, you'd only be able to use nine. But you could, why take something over again? Why not use the credits that you need? And there's lots of other ways, like you can take more than the necessary credits for a master's. Mm -hmm. You know, you can bulk up on master's thesis right. credits and and, you guys you know, are really tailoring to yeah, what your yeah. prospective students needs and want mm -hmm. and to really try to make sure that they're getting the best experience that they need because but that's going to be true of most universities <coughs> you've been limited is. to like nine yeah. credits right yeah. right but still you know even though you're like we're not going to make you you know retake this course mm -hmm. why don't you explore a different course that you know you might not have gotten at mm -hmm. your previous university right. or that you're interested in now. Yeah, and like um, both Marilyn and I were previous students, and so we understand, like, we wouldn't want to retake a course that we already took, and, you know, mm -hmm. we would want we want to get credit for the hard work that we already did, and so as faculty members, we're very uh, sympathetic and empathetic to that and try to work with you. Mm -hmm. And then similarly, I think one of the great strengths of any program and what most faculty, I think, mentors are like is that we're going to want to, you know, uh, Get, make your experience tailored towards your interests. Yeah, you're coming here because you, you want a behavior analytic background, maybe in research, um, clinical work, and then you're also interested in earning your either limited license or psychology license, so that's why you're here. But otherwise, the, the things that we get to choose, we're gonna help tailor towards your interests because that's you know really for the uh, benefit of you and our field. We don't just wanna train somebody to go out and we're not going to force anybody to or shoehorn anybody's experience just to kind of fit what our interests and needs are. We're, we're, you're here to come and get your experience, and we're going to make it worth your while. What is the interview process like mm -hmm. to get into the program? So I've only experienced one <clears throat> thus far, both for the master's program and the PhD program, and I would say that they're fairly traditional. Um, I don't. What I did like about it is that it wasn't necessarily a marathon of an interview, mm -hmm. so it wasn't a weekend long adventure. Um, it was, I think, a day and a half max, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know we are uh, just a whole day. Is it okay? Yeah. And so, <laughs> for both the masters and the PhD, for some reason, I thought no, the PhD for the PhD. Was, I'm sorry, you okay. were talking about the PhD. Well, it's kind of talking about yeah. both collectively, yeah. but um, but max, and so the masters is just yeah, a day and yeah, a day, not even a full day. Yeah, and just we're kind of after through lunch. And yeah, then. and I think the closest thing I can compare it to is kind of like speed dating in a sense of like <laughs> yeah. where you get with a faculty for 15 to 20 minutes, mm -hmm. question time, question asking, um, you get to meet with the students. Um, we do provide a general overview of what our program is like, the course is taught, um, who teaches what, who has the research interest, and so you just get like a, a day in the life sort of snapshot. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, from that I know we've been able to recruit um, really strong students. Um, we've been able to generate interest in that amount of time um, and, uh, you know, be able to identify the students that would do well in our program. Right, and that's actually kind of a theme. Like I was going to back up to the interview, you know, to the actual application process yeah. and who would be competitive they might need they might be interested in whether be. they'd be competitive for the program mm -hmm. so yes. if they're a strong like B plus kind of student mm -hmm. but I think that basically we are able to so far maybe we'll be inundated with students and we'll have to be more selective but so far, <laughs> but so far 
Um, I think our general theme is that we get enough students so that we can most generally pick the students who will be successful in the program the, and the most successful in the program and sometimes we have to overlook people who probably could be successful but not very often most of the mm -hmm. time I would say that most of the time we are looking to see can this person be successful mm -hmm. and kind of our criterion is okay if they never got above a C in stats maybe not you know um, if they have a 3.3, 3.5, they're solid. You know, mm -hmm. they're going to get in if they have good years. Maybe if they have like really low verbal score. You know, we're going to look at them. We're going to look at all the variables and we're going to be like, yeah, they got that low score, but that's their second yeah. language. And they've taken a writing course yeah. and they've done fine. They've and they've got to They've been motivated to try to improve mm -hmm. this. Yeah, and gen generally we look at grades like, you know, like the best indicator of what they can do is what they have done not of what their test score is, but sometimes the test score can tell us what their potential is mm -hmm. and it can compensate mm -hmm. for maybe someone's been just, you know, partying for three years mm -hmm. and they have a 3.0 or 2.9, but they have these, you know, but they also showed, we also want to see that, oh, in their last year they got their act yeah. together and, you know, <laughs> yes. you know but yes. I mean, it show, sometimes the scores <clears throat> show us what yeah. their potential could be, but and we try not to hold it against them yeah. if they've demonstrated competence right. otherwise. I mean, in those, looking at the scores and GPAs kind of give us an idea or at least a snapshot into what their baseline skill sets are, what their mm -hmm. you know current repertoires are at. But in addition to that and with the interview process, what we're looking for is, uh, uh, you know, fit. Yeah, fit and also um, somebody who's shapeable, right? We're behavior analysts here. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to be training somebody, you know, we obviously adhere to the principle of shaping. And we're looking for somebody who's motivated, and because if somebody comes in as top, you know, on all the, the GPA and um, scores, but they get in here and we can tell that they're not really that motivated to put in the effort. You know, there's not much you can do with that. But if you get somebody who is a three, 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 five, they maybe did. You could tell that there's a little bit of partying in them, but towards their last, you know, year and a half, they, they, they see, yeah, we yeah. see the motivation kick in. We see an accurate representation of where their skill sets are at. Um, and we see them have a passion for working with the population or just a passion for behavior analysis in general. Um, and they seem highly motivated uh, f for you know, coming to courses and um, gaining the skills and being receptive to feedback. Like those are the students that we want, the students that are shapeable and the students that are want to be here. And then also got to play well in the sandbox. So students that get along well and students that would be um, easy to work with and appropriate, <laughs> yeah. yeah, because we're also pro training professionals to go out and work with other other disciplines, but other people, caregivers, children, um, and so we want a good fit for uh, that uh, as well. The other thing that we yes. really look for, regardless of how stellar their credentials are, is do they know what they're getting into? Because if they don't know what behavior analysis or behavior therapy mm -hmm. is, we don't want them coming here and going, oh my God, I don't think like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to have some kind of indicator that they think like a behavior analyst, that they, maybe they know some of the terms or they, or they at least, you know, recognize that symptoms are learned or right. something sure. that sort of tells you that they're thinking along the lines of, mm -hmm. you know, that it meshes, that it's compatible with their thinking, you know. Yeah. So and that I know fifth that thing is important. And I know that um, since, you know, we're talking about the application process, the student experience, 
There is something that even other schools that I've already talked to have mentioned about Eastern, um, that Eastern puts on the Behavior Analysis Association of Michigan Conference, BAM. or BAM, yes. every year. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about BAM? Yeah, so um, for those of you that are students and upcoming you know, con- conference going might not be something that you are familiar with yet, um, but as a professional and even in grad school, you are expected to go to uh, state, regional, national, international conferences to um, go learn more about behavior analysis, but also to share with other behavior analysts the cool research and clinical work that you're doing. And um, our state conference uh, that uh, we just kind of discussed is actually put on at our student center here. So um, one of the things about being a professional and going to conferences is that you have to travel a lot. You got to pay for hotels. You got to book flights to go to these conferences. So there's a lot of great things about traveling and doing that, but it also can be exhausting. So to have a conference that's held in our backyard, there's so many benefits to that, especially as a student coming in. Um, you get to get experience <clears throat> working with the faculty that lead that conference, and so you can learn how to put on a conference, learn how to um, uh, organize and set things up, uh, introduce speakers, but also I think as uh, uh, students you get you know discounted rates to attend, but you kind of get to see the conference from a unique perspective, not only a conference goer, but a conference putter honor. Um, but uh, so I think that's a great strength, and it's convenient, it's here. Um, and throughout, you know, like any conference, there's so many networking opportunities and it's one that you, you know, there's other conferences that you might not get a chance to go to as a student due to expenses and travel, but this is one that you uh, get access to that is, in my opinion, just as high quality as some of the other conferences that are held uh, throughout the country. I think participating and assisting of the mm-hmm. running of the conference is a super important thing. Mainly, I think it's important because it promotes the value of service and community mm-hmm. service, service to your organization, yeah. supporting your organization, mm-hmm. disseminating things. And so just by, you know, making, typing up name tags and stuff, that's right. huge. And I think that that expectation is really an important one to promote. Well, and it also, I have had experience helping run the Michigan Autism Conference mm-hmm. that's held mm-hmm. in Kalamazoo. Um, it also teaches you a different set of skills. Totally. Yes. Um, those are not, you know, those are not skills yeah. that we are taught in school. No, they're not. Right, right. And th- it's a different set of skills. And a very generalizable set of skills, exactly. too. Exactly. Yep. And, and, and a set of skills that can seem overwhelming. If you look at a conference, you're like, how the heck yes. would I ever mm-hmm. run ABBA? You yep. know? Yeah. But when you see it from the gra- grassroots and you see mm-hmm. it, you know, evolving yeah. and you see, okay, yeah. you mm-hmm. start on this day, you do these, you know. Yeah. I mean, it becomes something mm-hmm. that is you think you could do. Yes. Yeah. And I know that, you know, speaking from personal experience, I think I've been to BAM five-ish years when I was living in Michigan through grad school and then after. Um, it's very, very affordable. Um, they always have very good presenters. It's a great it's a great opportunity for students to come in and present their material as well on uh, not such a national stage like ABBA or something like that it's lower key it's lower key it's um it's fun um I know that when I was um, working in my clinical experience I actually required granted you know the company paid for it Mm because we required it Mm -hmm. but we actually required we shut down all of our services for a day and sent all of our staff to BAM 
for one day. That's great that you guys um, value that experience right. so much. Whether or not they were a student of behavior analysis or just a staff member, you know, working, it was professional development was a big focus of ours at the time. And we shut down our entire clinic, all of our services for a day. And, you know, we expressed that to the parents and the schools and the caregiving staff that, you know, we worked with and said, this is a very big factor for us. This is how we continue to grow as a company and a field and create better practitioners. And yeah, we shut down and we sent all of our, all of our staff to BAM for a day. What I love about it too is like I've this this my past year was actually my first year even though I went to Western it was really the only year that I had a chance to get to it, but after day one I felt so excited and so grateful being in the state of Michigan seeing programs like at Michigan State obviously Western Michigan Central Michigan Northern Michigan Oakland University and then all the clinical um, uh, programs that are sending their folks there and just all the cool stuff that's going on in our state really got me excited about. Uh, our state of affairs, um, quite literally, and where behavior analysis is. Um, and I think it's just, we're in a really, really great state for behavior analysis. And I know we've actually recently passed licensure um, for becoming beha- licensed behavior analysts. And so there's a lot of really cool activity going on at the state level that you learn about at the state conferences mm-hmm. and be able to make uh, networks and contacts with, with everybody across all the universities. Um, I know Michigan School of Psychology is actually another university that I forgot to mention that is has a, uh, a behavior analyst training program. So there's a lot of really, really impressive programs in our state that get highlighted and featured at the conference. So whether you're a student already at one of those or a prospective student, it's a great opportunity to come and uh, check things out and see the, the lay of the land in, uh, in behavior analysis and, in uh, Michigan. And it's sort of the same experience as like when you go to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. It's like another opportunity to go and be around a whole bunch of people that speak your language. Um. Well, I, I, want to, um, <laughs> I wanted to say one thing to emphasize about our grad assistantships yeah, that we do please. have two to offer um, for each um, cohort of students and we also have a really strong cohort I think we don't do too many things but we have that orient we have the interview process mm-hmm. they meet each other there they come in together they take pretty much the same courses the first and this usually the second semester mm-hmm. they split off a bit when they some are part-time and some are full and we do have a couple of social activities throughout the year but then BAM is another cohort activity and it's kind of also a, an opportunity where the first years and the se- the first years will be a cohort in the second years and then you'll get that cross mixing mm-hmm. where they'll say oh well I'm doing my practicum here we also do a practicum fair at BAM mm-hmm. so that the students can um, hear the speakers present what they have to offer at their practicum sites mm-hmm. um, one of the other strengths of our undergraduate curriculum is that we have the undergraduate research symposium every year yes and the this is one of the coolest things that I coming here as a faculty member that I'm most excited about and so each year um, the undergraduates that function as research assistants or that are working closely with um, faculty get an opportunity to present research and um, they Again, it's either a project that they've been working on, for, you know, for a year, or a project that they just are had, had been working on with others, but they've been, you know, been selected to be the one to present it. And the format for doing so comes in a variety of forms. So 
There's, um, they can give a presentation, they can give poster presentations. They've been, depending on, you know, not so much in the psychology area, but this is university-wide. So you get individuals from the engineering program or individuals from architecture who their presentation is an actual model or a demonstration of something that they've created. Or an art piece. Yeah, art yeah. piece too, which is, again, it's just, highlights the diversity of training and the high quality of training that Eastern Michigan University has to offer. And I think it's just one of those unique things that our undergraduate program offers that is not, uh, that I've not seen at other universities. It feels like a real co professional conference. Yeah, and then you have does. to remind yourself, these are undergrads, oh my goodness, right. that how well prepared they are, how articulate they are. And we give some awards there mm -hmm. too. Our department gives some awards for the best poster and the best presentations and stuff yep. like that. We also have a couple of uh, competitions at the undergraduate level for some scholarships, as well as at the master's yeah. level. Yep. Um, so. so if you're an undergrad or prospective undergrad looking into our program, this is a great opportunity if you are interested in getting more research experience or working closely with a faculty member in preparation for maybe going on to grad school. Or if you're a graduate student coming in, it's I want to highlight it because it just demonstrates how high quality our undergraduate students are that are going to be helping you with your own research as research assistants and that you'll be attending meetings with, how serious they are and how committed they are to learning um, at Eastern Michigan University. And I think um, one of the secrets that I learned as a graduate student, even as a faculty, is surround yourself with smart and hardworking people and you're going to make, get a lot of cool things done and be very productive and Eastern Michigan offers that. And so for those coming in, that's, I think, something to um, be aware of. And as a faculty, I'm very proud of. And the faculty really do take a lot of time mentoring students too, I think. So mm -hmm. we're always willing to, to do that. And back to what the yeah. back to what they can expect when they get here in terms of things outside of academia yes. and the Ipsy area. I think all we have left to talk about is this really, really weird town called Gypsilanti. So the why um, is so the why is silent. The why is silent. So yes, I have been saying it wrong on purpose. It is Ypsilanti. <laughs> or the I, it's not silence, but it's, it's I. It's an it, I yeah. Instead it's of a, a Y. It's a, sure. like an I instead of a Y. So if you see this really random town, just like Kalamazoo, it does actually exist. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've experienced it a little bit. I've lived in the Metro Detroit area for the last few years before I moved to Florida. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about the Ypsilanti area. And so uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, um, Ypsilanti is, would you call it like a sister city or brother city to Ann Arbor? Is that something you would we say? We live in the shadow. Oh, well, I, I don't... <laughs> Metro Ann Arbor. Yeah. So Ann Arbor is just a very diverse um, cultural, social... Uh, community and there's so many great uh, uh, food venues, music venues, cultural all, culture of all kinds. Yeah, yeah, of all kinds from all over, yeah. and it's just such a uh, lively atmosphere mm -hmm. to go and you know spend weekends or evenings down there, and for both students and faculty alike, it's just a really great experience. And Ypsilanti is again, it's a little bit smaller, but I think it's just a more dense experience of that and so it doesn't have as much uh, a, a broad categories but what it does have they're real treasures and so there's a little downtown called uh, Depot Town that's really trying to create some really nice uh, restaurants um, and kind of bar scenes there's really I've been my wife and I've been paying attention to some of the community activities in Ypsilanti so there's lots of fun uh, uh, parks and activities and art festivals and um, uh, we were, we're big fans of like farmers markets and so Ypsilanti has one and Arbor has a really wonderful 
It's almost like it's a more down-home version of Ann Arbor. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, a more earthy version, right. you know, and it's kind of like the same. And a lot of people, you know, actually talk about Ann Arbor as being kind of foo-foo, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I don't know. <laughs> well, I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to get into Just that. in case people are like, oh, I recognize the name yeah, Ann Arbor. Yeah, if it's off-putting, right. that, it, you know, it tends to be more upscale. Yeah. The restaurants are fancier. Right. Um they're both really liberal and both really diverse communities, mm-hmm. but in pretty different ways, I would yeah. say. Yeah. yeah, and just so everybody, if you recognize the name Ann Arbor, um, that is where U of M is, the University of Michigan. So that is also right down the road as well. With all the resources. Um, and all I mean, of they the have resources like 50 libraries and on connections campus. And, and yes, and as well. Cur- and they speakers. have yep, <clears throat> speakers, uh, speakers, faculty that we collaborate with. Um, we actually, their uh, CS Mott um, Medical Center um, is a site that we send our students mm-hmm. to to get experience in pediatric feeding disorders. Say, they're doing some very good research yep. in as feeding where, disorders. As well as where Claudia worked, which was in the neuro unit at mm-hmm. UVM. Yep. And yeah. um, we have connections with the anxiety clinic yep. there and the yes. depression clinic. And, so. and then on the other side of Ypsilanti, if you go about 30-ish minutes east, You'll be right downtown Detroit, yep. and it's. I like to reiterate this to all my non-Michigan Detroiters. It's not what you think it is. It's a beautiful <laughs> there's really cool stuff. Yeah, there's. It's a beautiful yep. culture and community that people are very proud of. And my wife is not from Michigan, um, but she picked on really early through my friends and family and how much we talked about. Michigan and Metro Detroit and how much we loved our state and our community and I think that when you come and experience it here you'll take away the same types of uh, ownership and um, uh, just the love for the city and the community and just all the beautiful things that are uh, uh, pure Michigan I guess if I could throw that tagline out there Um, but uh, it really is and it's so it's a wonderful place there's lots of opportunities both east and west and um, you know, obviously, northern Michigan is a beautiful place to go spend a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and then only being four or so hours from Chicago, and um, you're pretty nicely located. Um, and lots to do all over, and a very cool, just down-to-earth community to uh, uh, spend some time in. You can live in some pretty, I mean, depending. Students usually like to live close and right. in inexpensive housing. Yes. But, I mean, you can live in the country. You can live in these small little mm-hmm. towns like Dexter or Chelsea. Um, Belleville, um, you, you could live on a lake, you mm-hmm. could live, well, no mountains, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. anyway, you, you can live, live in a, or you can live in, you know, really close to an urban, you can live in an urban city. I was going to say, you can live, I lived right downtown Detroit, New Center, mm-hmm. when awesome. I lived here. And Fantastic awesome. restaurants and stuff. Oh my gosh, amazing. Um, I miss it. But, and I know that... Not so much today when I was coming here, which is really weird, but normally getting to where Eastern is located, you're going against traffic as well. You're usually getting out of the city in the morning and going into the city at night. So A lot of students um, work during the day, and I mean, a lot of our courses are at night. That's worth mentioning, too. Right. Um, not exclusive. Well, I mean, you do have to take some night classes, yes. but you, you can take a mix. Um, but for students who work full-time mm-hmm. and want to go part-time, they can do it in the evening. So that's a pretty cool element. Very good. So now that we're wrapping up, is there anything else that you two would like to just mention about Eastern Michigan or the area or the program?
or any. But I'm going to take exception to what you said. I just have a <coughs> master's degree. I know. You know, a master's degree is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. It is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. To have. I enjoy it, and I like. And but I look what you've been able to do with it. I know. Yeah. Yes, I've got lots of different experiences, clinical, and now I expanded, and now I'm more in the training and education and OBM side of it, and I love it. And now it's my job and what I'm taking on to teach everyone else how they can expand on what they might think behavior analysis is. Which I think Um, is so needed. And I think this is such an uh, an amazing resource, um, not only for students interested in behavior analysis and training, but as I mentioned earlier when we first started chatting, I'm excited about uh, directing my students to this podcast and to what you guys are doing as a resource because um, you guys offer a lot of things that maybe aren't as easily accessible or uh, other mentors might not ha- be able to provide uh, insight into. And so you're going to be able to have it at the, provide it at the fingertips of those students that are eager and motivated mm-hmm. and interested mm-hmm. and really give them that uh, information. I think that's a real strength. And I think another thing too is although like we were kind of directing you to the website and directing you to the profiles and telling you who is out there, feel free to contact myself or uh, Dr. Bonham and we would be more than happy to answer questions and make sure that if you are interested, just make sure that this is a good fit for you and um, we'll be honest and open and, you know, because we understand making decisions about attending undergraduate, graduate school is very important and so we'll help you make the right decision. And I'll make sure that I list everyone's email and the website online and just, you know, from my personal experience, they are very responsive and um, they've made me feel like home and I've only been here for a few, for a few hours. Um, but wonderful. Well, thank you both for letting me come in and invade your office for a couple hours and chit-chatting. And um, I know I've had a good time. Thank you very much. Thank you. And good luck with everything, too. And thank you again for uh, selecting our program to highlight. Yeah. Appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the University Series on Opera Innovations. Stay tuned for more interviews coming from universities across the country. But do you have any more suggestions? Because we would love to hear them. Please contact us at operainnovations at abatechnologies.com.